Section 4 of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 1, The Renaissance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 1. The Age of Discovery by E. J. Payne. Part 2. As the Portuguese exploration of the African coast proceeded during sixty years, the objects with which it was pursued were almost completely transformed, and it illustrates, perhaps more aptly than any other episode in European history, the transition from the ideas of the Crusading Age to those of the age of dominant commerce and colonization. Don Henrique's conception of a greater Portugal, including the island groups of the Atlantic and Bilad Ghana on the Senegal River, certainly recalls, and was probably founded on, the Mohammedan dominion which included southern Spain, the Balearic Islands, and northern Africa, and which St. Louis proposed to replace by a Christian dominion equally comprehensive. To this strictly medieval conception, the Infante added some dim idea of a junction with the Christian sovereign of Abyssinia to be effected by ascending the western Nile. Beyond this point, we have no reason to conclude that his imagination ever wandered. The transformation began after his death. The new dominion called Guinea was ascertained by a rapidly extending process of exploration to be of enormous size. This modest province, as it had seemed in prospect, assumed the proportions and character of a vast and hitherto unknown continent. Twenty-six years of discovery after the Infantis death revealed three times the length of coast which had been made known in the course of a considerably longer period during his lifetime. And the Portuguese sailors had now been brought within measurable distance of the Red Sea and Persian Gulf, of India, China, and the Spice Islands. Europe's commerce with the East, an object far exceeding in importance the conquest of Guinea, was evidently within the grasp of Portugal. Ten years elapsed, and the transcendent effort of seamanship had to be made before actual possession was taken of the prize. Meanwhile, the geographical knowledge attained during these twenty-six years wrought like a ferment in the minds of European observers. It was felt that the little kingdom of Portugal had effected something like a revolution in the intellectual world, and the ideas inspired by this change, while the existence of the new world called afterwards America, was as yet unsuspected, are admirably expressed in an epistle addressed to João II by Angiolo Poliziano, professor of Greek and Latin literature at Florence. The foremost scholar of the Renaissance tenders to the Portuguese king the thanks of cultivated Europe. Not only have the pillars of Hercules been left behind, and a raging ocean subdued, but the interrupted continuity of the habitable world has been restored, and a continent long abandoned to savagery, representing one-third of the habitable world, has been recovered for Christianity and civilization. What new commodities and economic advantages, what accessions to knowledge, what confirmation of ancient history, heretofore rejected as incredible, may now be expected? New lands, new seas, new worlds— Ali Mundi. Even new constellations have been dragged from secular darkness into the light of day. 
Portugal stands forth the trustee, the guardian of a second world, Mundus Alter, holding in the hollow of her hand a vast series of lands, ports, seas, and islands, revealed by the industry of her sons and the enterprise of her kings. The purpose of Politian's epistle is to suggest that the story of this momentous acquisition should be adequately written while the memorials of it are yet fresh and complete, and to this end he offers his own services. Its significance for ourselves lies in the fact that his admiration is couched in terms which would apply with equal or greater propriety to the impending discovery of the western continent. The existence of America was as yet unsuspected, and the mental fermentation produced in Europe by the Portuguese voyages quickly led to its discovery. To cosmographers this fermentation irresistibly suggested the revival of an idea, evolved 1800 years previously by Greek geographers from the consideration of the recently ascertained sphericity of the earth, and the approximate dimensions of its known continental areas. A few days' sail with a fair wind, it had been long ago contended, would suffice to carry a ship from the shores of Spain by a westward course to the eastern shores of Asia. The argument had never been wholly lost sight of, and the revival of science in the thirteenth century had once more brought it into prominence. Roger Bacon had given it a conspicuous place in his speculations as to the distribution of land and ocean over the globe. One is even tempted to think that those adventurous Genoese, who, in 1281, passed the Straits of Gibraltar with two vessels, intending to make their way to the Indies, and were never again heard of, prematurely sought to bring it to the test of experience. But the better opinion is that they merely proposed to circumnavigate South Africa. As the African coast was progressively explored by the Portuguese, and laid down on the chart, the realization of the idea of reaching the east by way of the west became a practical matter. While Gomes was pushing forward the exploration of southern Guinea, a canon of Lisbon, on a visit to Florence, consulted Toscanelli, the most celebrated of Italian physicists, on the feasibility of such a voyage, and brought back to Afonso V a verbal opinion favorable to it, and this opinion was shortly confirmed by a letter and a chart, on which the proposed westward course was laid down. Twelve years were yet to pass before Gias reached the Cape of Good Hope. The time for testing the scheme had not fully come. But, as the Portuguese ships drew nearer to their goal, the western voyage more and more attracted attention, and the idea gained countenance through the extension of maritime enterprise further and further into the unknown westward expanses of the Atlantic Ocean, pursuant to the development of a greater Portugal, according to Dom Henrique's design. Before his death, the Infante had provided for colonization and church-building in each island of the Azores group. Beyond the Azores, medieval imaginative cartographers dotted the unknown Atlantic with numerous islands, some of which were distinguished by positive names. Scholars pondered over Pliny's account, based on a legend stated at length in Plato's Timaeus, of the great island Atlantis, believed to have formerly existed far to the westward of Mount Atlas, from which both island and ocean derived their familiar name. 
Later legends described various existing islands as having been actually reached in historical times. Arab sailors had discovered the Isle of Sheep. Welsh emigrants had peopled a distant land in the west. Seven bishops, fleeing before the Mohammedan invaders, had sailed westward from the Spanish peninsula and founded Christian communities on an island which thenceforward bore the name of the Isle of the Seven Cities. St. Brandon, an Irish missionary, had reached another rich and fertile island, traditionally named from its discoverer. Another island, believed to lie not far to westward of the Irish coast, bore the name Brazil. Far to the northwest, a perfectly truthful historical tradition, embodied in the sagas of Iceland and repeated by geographers, placed the new land or new isle, discovered in the tenth century by Northmen from Iceland, and by them named Vineland, from the small indigenous American grape. All the Azores islands had been colonized in the infantis lifetime, as after his death the Guinea coast was revealed in ever-lengthening extent, other adventurers dared to sail further and further westward into the unknown expanses of the Atlantic. The name commonly given among the Portuguese seamen to the object of such voyages was Anchilha, a word by some antiquaries derived from the Arabic, though more probably a compound Portuguese word meaning opposite island, or island in the distance, and denoting any land expected to be descried on the horizon. Year by year, vessels from Lisbon scoured the sea beyond the Azores in search of Anchilha or Anchilhas. In 1486, the year in which Dias reached the Cape of Good Hope, Fernão Dolmos, Lord of Terceira, procured from João II a grant of Antilha to his own use, conditionally upon its discovery by him within two years. The terms in which it was on this occasion described clearly illustrate the contemporary idea concerning it, a great isle or isles or continental coast. The possibility of reaching eastern Asia with its continental coast and numerous islands by a western passage was no doubt present to the minds of those who framed this grant. But Anchilha was by no means conceived of as part of the Asiatic coast, or as one of the adjacent islands. It was believed to lie nearly midway between Europe and Asia, and would form the voyager's halfway station on his passage to and fro. Hence, its discovery was looked forward to as the first step in the achievement of the westward passage. The description of it as a great isle or isles or continental coast perhaps connects it with the new land or vineland of the Northmen, which was represented as a continental shore bordering the northern expanses of the Atlantic, with islands of its own adjacent to it. Some such conception of the halfway land was probably present to the mind of John Cabot, who reached Labrador and Newfoundland by taking a northward route, passing by or near to Iceland, the maritime base of the Northmen's discovery of Vineland. The more usual conception of Anchilha was that of a large solitary island in the midst of the Atlantic in more southern latitudes, and it had been so indicated on the chart sent by Toscanelli for the guidance of Portuguese explorers in 1474. Similar notions were entertained as to the islands of St. Brandon and Brazil by the seamen of Bristol, who, during these years, 
were scouring the Atlantic further to the northward, with not less eagerness than those of Lisbon. The general object of all these voyages was the same. It was to find some convenient halfway island as an outpost of further exploration in the direction of the Far East, and a station in the new commercial route about to be established. Year by year, sailors from Bristol sailed from Dingle Bay, on the southwest coast of Ireland, in search of Brazil Island, pursuing the same plan as that of the Portuguese, who sailed from Lisbon in quest of the Anchilha, or Anchilhas. No record exists of the course taken in these voyages, but we can have little doubt that after sailing for some distance due west, the course was changed, and a zigzag mode of exploration was adopted, which could lead to nothing but failure. The explorer, ever haunted by the suspicion that he had left Anchilia behind him, would at length change his course and look out in the reverse direction. It is easy to see that the first condition of a westward voyage, which was to produce a positive discovery, was definitively to abandon this fruitless method and to sail due west from the old world. Colombo was the first to reach America because he was the first to take this view of the conditions of his task. His plan, early determined on and tenaciously adhered to, was to abandon Anchilia and Brazil, and to assume that between the Azores and the eastern shores and islands of Asia there were no lands to be discovered, and that there was accordingly nothing to be done but to cross the trackless Atlantic by as direct a course as possible. This perfectly accurate forecast, and the firmness with which he adhered to the plan founded upon it, rank among the most conspicuous indications of Colombo's greatness. The execution of such a plan involved great preparations. Three ships, provisioned for twelve months, represented Colombo's estimate of what was necessary. And whatever powers should accept his offer to sail with such an equipment for the eastern shores and islands of Asia, was destined to acquire the substantial sovereignty of the new continent, whose existence remained as yet unsuspected. Both Cristoforo and Bartolomeo Colombo had been from their youth in the maritime service of Portugal, and Cristoforo had married a Portuguese wife. In early life he had found constant employment in the Guinea voyages, having also sailed to Bristol, and from Bristol far beyond Iceland, he knew the entire field of Atlantic navigation, from the Arctic Circle to the Equator. It was natural that his first proposal for making a westward passage to the east should be made to the King of Portugal. It was equally natural that the proposal should be rejected. The circumnavigation of Africa was nearly accomplished. Of this route to the wealthy east, the Portuguese would enjoy a practical monopoly, and it could be effectively defended. Contemporary explorations in the western Atlantic left doubtful the question whether any land, island, or continent existed in this direction within practical sailing distance. Even if the westward passage were successfully accomplished, it was manifest that Portugal would be unable to monopolize it, and that the discovery would ultimately inure for the benefit of the stronger maritime nations of western Europe. Considerations of this kind sufficed to ensure the rejection of Colombo's proposals by the prudent counsellors of Afonso V. But the projector always remembered his repulse with bitter resentment, and mockingly remarked, in after years, 
that the Almighty had rendered Afonso blind and deaf to the miracle about to be wrought by him through the agency of the king and queen of Castile. Having failed in the land of his adoption, Colombo carried his project to the republic of which he was born a citizen, where it met with no better reception. The interest of Genoa was to keep the oriental trade in its existing overland channels, and the same consideration prevailed with the rival city of Venice, to whose signoria the projector made his next application. It was now clear that the project would only be taken up by some power which had no vested interest in maintaining the existing state of commercial intercourse, some power on the western seaboard of Europe, for which the establishment of the proposed route would open up a new field of enterprise. Such powers were Spain, England, and France, and Colombo astutely bethought himself of applying simultaneously to the two former, and playing them off against each other, until one of them definitely accepted his proposal. He carried his plan in person to Spain, and commissioned his brother Bartolomeo to lay it before Henry VII of England. Accidents, delays, and circumstances of various kinds put off for four years longer the momentous issue, which of these two powers would accept the plan and obtain the inheritance of the unknown new world? Fortune inclined the balance in favor of Spain. When a message at length arrived, summoning Colombo to a conference with the King of England, he had already come to a substantial agreement, though he had not yet concluded all the terms of his bargain with Ferdinand and Isabella. Bartolomeu Diaz, at this juncture, had just returned from his cruise on the southernmost shore of Africa. On April 17, 1492, the contract was signed, which secured to Colombo not merely the usual rewards of maritime enterprise accorded to adventurers in Portuguese practice, but some additional advantages of a personal nature, including the dignity of admiral and viceroy in the islands and continental provinces to be acquired by him for the Castilian crown. On August the 3rd, he sailed from Palos. On September the 6th, he quitted the roadstead of Gomera. And three days later, the breeze sprang up, which carried his three caravels successfully across the Atlantic. At this point, it will be convenient to glance for a moment at the existing state of geographical knowledge, which had become considerably augmented during the 15th century. With one vast deduction, namely, the northern and northeastern coasts of Europe and Asia, from the North Cape of Norway eastward as far as northern China, including northern Russia and Siberia, the old world had now been completely revealed. To Europeans, indeed, the contour of southeastern Africa remained unascertained. Its true shape, nevertheless, must have been known to the Arab seamen who navigated the Indian Ocean. Many of these were also well acquainted with the eastern archipelago, known to Europeans only as passengers or overland travelers, as far as a point near the western end of New Guinea. Greenland was known, and in northern and western Europe the discovery of Vineland by Norse adventurers five hundred years previously was still a familiar tradition. From the point of view of scientific geography, all this amounted to little. Not more than one-fourth of the Earth's surface had been laid down on the map. Colombo's first expedition did no more than determine the breadth of the Atlantic in the latitude of the northern tropic, and prove that a numerous group of islands, 
from which the proximity of a continental shore, or terra firma, might fairly be inferred, existed on the other side. His subsequent voyages changed this inference into certainty, but the fact that the terra firma here encountered was a continent hitherto unknown, though its northern parts had been reached by the Northmen five centuries before, was never ascertained by him, and to the day of his death, fourteen years later, he believed himself to have merely reached the eastern parts of Asia. In fact, he was nearly at the opposite meridian, and a hemisphere raised its immense dome between. Colombo's five weeks' voyage, nevertheless, proved the great turning point in man's slowly progressing knowledge of the globe. Eighteen years after his death, the general figure of the new world had been ascertained, its southernmost point rounded, the Pacific crossed, and the first furrow ploughed by a ship's keel around the sphere. Small as was his own actual contribution to geographical knowledge, it was his energy and enterprise, and his alone, which rapidly forced on a conception of geography sufficiently accurate to last with little improvement to the time of Cook, nearly three centuries later. The consequences of this voyage must ever render all its details and circumstances matters of exceptional interest, but it is impossible here to enter into them. On October the 12th, 1492, Colombo landed on one of the Bahama Islands from his ship's boat, wearing the costume of Admiral of Castile, and holding aloft the Castilian banner. And, in the course of a three-month's cruise, he visited Cuba and Haiti, and gained a general notion of the West Indian archipelago. The tidings of his voyage were joyfully received, both in Spain and at Rome, and a petition was preferred to Pope Alexander the Sixth for a confirmation to the Spanish crown of the district comprising the newly found islands, subject only to the rights of any Christian communities which might happen to be included in it. In answer to this, two separate bulls were issued. One simply contained the confirmation desired. The other was framed in similar terms, but limited the area of Spanish enterprise to a meridian line to be drawn one hundred leagues west of the Azores and the Cape Verde Islands. The last, often singled out as a prominent illustration of Romish arrogance, was in fact only a suggestion intended to prevent disputes, probably due to some official of the papal chancery. It was never acted on by the parties, and was withdrawn in the same year by the Pope himself. For, by a third bull, dated September 25, 1493, and superseding previous ones, the entire field of oceanic enterprise was expressly declared to be open to both nations, on the understanding that Spain should approach it by the westward passage only, and not infringe Portugal's monopoly of the African coast. The parties, thus remitted to their original rights, fixed as the boundary of their areas of enterprise a meridian of their own selection, 370 leagues west of the Cape Verde Islands, and intended to mark a midway line between the Azores, the westernmost of Portugal's possessions, and the new islands in the West Indies, supposed to be the easternmost parts of the Spanish acquisitions. The action of the Holy See in assuming to partition the globe between the sovereigns of Spain and Portugal has often been ridiculed. Such ridicule, it will be seen, is misplaced, and the papal claim to universal dominion, in its practical bearings, represented nothing more than a simple counterclaim 
against the more ancient and equally extravagant pretensions of the successors of Mohammed. A second voyage made by Colombo in 1493, a third in 1498, and a fourth in 1502, added something, but not much, to the sum of his discoveries. And his administration as a governor of the new Spanish acquisitions was only remarkable for demonstrating his utter incapacity for the post. Naturally enough, his conception of his duties, and of the purpose which the new possessions of Spain were destined to serve, was based on the policy of the Portuguese on the coast of Guinea. Gold, and slaves as a means to gold, and as the only product immediately procurable and readily exchangeable for gold, were the only commodities worth carrying to Europe, and the scantier the supply of the former, the greater was the necessity for pushing the quest of the latter. The true riches of the Indies, Colombo wrote, are the Indians. The wretched natives, unable to procure the small quantity of gold demanded of them as a poll tax, were provoked to resistance, and then captured and shipped by him in great numbers to Europe, to be sold in the market of Seville. But the feeble and intractable Indians proved of little value as laborers, and it was at length ordered that this revolting traffic must cease. The Spanish adventurers who accompanied him frustrated his plans and procured his recall, and at his death in 1506, fourteen years after his unique nautical achievement, the first seaman in Europe, who might in half that time have revealed the whole American coast, had only added to the map the West Indian archipelago and the coasts of Honduras, Nicaragua, Costa Rica, Darien, and Paria in Venezuela. In a few years, his name was almost forgotten, and by a strange freak of fortune, one Americo Vespucci, a man of mercantile pursuits who happened more than once to visit the New World and wrote accounts of his adventures, was credited by an ignorant public with Colombo's discovery, and from him the new continent received its name. Meanwhile, the success of Colombo's first and second voyages urged on the Portuguese the necessity of prosecuting, to its conclusion, their own national enterprise. Dom Manuel the Fortunate now succeeded to the throne, 1495, and Vasco da Gama, a young seaman who had been selected by João II, after the return of Gias, to command the expedition which was to complete the work of sixty years by carrying the Portuguese flag round the newly discovered southern cape to the shores of India, was commissioned to undertake the task. A voyage from Lisbon to India was by far the greatest feat of seamanship ever attempted. Even its first portion, the voyage to the Cape of Good Hope, which it was proposed to make as directly as possible from the Cape Verde Islands across the open ocean, avoiding the circuitous route by the Guinea coast and the mouth of the Congo, was a far greater undertaking than the voyage of Colombo. The discoverer of America had but to sail thirty-six days, with a fair wind, to traverse the 2,600 miles between Gomera and the Bahamas. The distance from the Cape Verde Islands to the Cape was 3,770 miles. It was impossible to make the voyage by great circle sailing. Contrary winds and currents made it necessary to shape a course curving to the extent of almost half a circle, the direct line forming the cord of the arc, and ninety-three days elapsed after da Gama had left the Cape Verde Islands before he reached the coast of South Africa. 
leaving Lisbon on July the 8th, 1497, and the island of Santiago, the southernmost of the Cape Verde group, on August the 3rd, he first sighted land on November the 4th, and on the 8th anchored in the Bay of Santa Helena, in the land of the Hottentots, where he remained eight days, careening his ships and taking in wood. Quitting his anchorage on the 16th, he doubled the Cape on the 22nd, and three days later reached Mossel Bay, where he remained thirteen days. Resuming his course on December the 8th, he, eight days afterwards, passed the mouth of the Great Fish River, the last point reached by Gish, and was now in waters never before traversed by European vessels. Struggling against the Agulhas current, which had baffled his predecessor, he, on Christmas Day, reached the roadstead which, from that circumstance, obtained the name of Port Natal. After making halts in the bay of Lourenço Marques, and at the mouth of the Kiliman River, da Gama once more stood out to sea, and on March the 2nd, 1498, anchored in the roadstead of Mozambique. He had now effected the desired junction of the west with the east, for the Mohammedan population here spoke the Arabic language, and through his own interpreters he could freely communicate with them. From this point, da Gama's task was easy. He had entered a field of navigation known in all its parts from remote times, and familiar ground to resident Mohammedan seamen and traders, who received him amicably, and furnished him with pilots. From Mozambique he proceeded to Mombasa, where he fell in with non-Mohammedan residents, supposed by him to be Christians, but in reality Banyans of India. A still larger Christian population of the same nation was found in the port of Malindi. Here, the adventurers were furnished with a Christian pilot, who conducted them safely across the Indian Ocean to Calicut, off which place da Gama anchored on May 20th, ten months and twelve days after leaving Lisbon. Calicut was the great emporium of Arab trade. It was the chief among the many ports of the Malabar coast, whence Europe drew its supplies of pepper and ginger. Here Mohammedan merchants purchased cinnamon brought from Ceylon, and spices from the Molucca Islands, which they carried to the port of Jidda in Arabia, and then to the port of Tor in the Sinaitic Peninsula, whence they were carried overland to Cairo. Here they were shipped down the Nile to Rosetta, and the last stage of transport was performed on camels to Alexandria, where they were purchased by European merchants. At all these places duties had to be paid, in consequence of which the cost of the merchandise was quadrupled, and large profits could be reaped by merchants who carried them directly from the east to western Europe. There was another trade route to Europe by way of the Persian Gulf, and so through Syria to Aleppo and Beirut. Although frequent wars were waged between the native princes of the Malabar coast, they all maintained a good understanding with the Muslim sailors and traders, and many of the latter permanently resided on the Malabar coast and in the Far East. The arrival of the Portuguese was not altogether unexpected. Their intention of penetrating the Indian Ocean was well known, and on his arrival da Gama pretended to be in search of some missing vessels of his squadron. Having landed to inquire concerning them, he asked permission to trade, which was granted. Meanwhile, the Muslim residents, intrigued with the native prince, entitled the Samori or Zamorin, hoping to deal the Portuguese a crushing blow on the very threshold of their undertaking. Representing the newcomers as mere marauders, 
they so far succeeded as to induce the Zamorin to detain da gama and some of his companions as prisoners he barely himself escaped assassination but a good understanding was at length restored and the portuguese commander after taking in a valuable cargo of pepper ginger cinnamon cloves and nutmegs besides rubies and other precious stones sailed on his return voyage on august twenty ninth fourteen ninety eight and in september fourteen ninety nine at length made his triumphal entry into lisbon besides the merchandise which he secured he brought back precise information concerning the coasts of india as far as bengal ceylon malacca pegu and sumatra thus was the way open for europe's maritime invasion of the east a process in modern history perhaps of even greater importance than the european occupation of the new world ever since da gama's great voyage southern and eastern asia comprising then as now the most populous nations on the globe have been gradually falling under the sway of the european powers who have first appropriated their foreign trade making permanent settlements on their coasts in order to secure it then advanced to controlling their administration and usurping their government and in some varying degree have succeeded in the more difficult task of gradually changing their habits of life and thought in all this europeans have been following in the footsteps of the mohammedans of western asia and northern africa and these had inherited their commercial sphere from remote antiquity greek tradition even ascribed the invention of ocean navigation to the aboriginal erythraeans who had ploughed the red sea long before phoenicians and greeks ventured to cross the mediterranean an ancient ethnology distinguished these from the semitic adventurers who in historical times had colonized the islands on the southern coast of arabia and not only traded by sea along this coast in its entire length but frequented the adjacent shores of africa and regularly crossed the mouth of the persian gulf with the monsoon in search of the commodities of western india End of section four.